This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Welcome back to Clean Technica's Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Today we have Anthony Townsend, urbanist in residence at Cornell Tech and author of the just-released book, Ghost Road, Beyond the Driverless Car. Welcome, Anthony. Hi, it's great to be here. So, uh, Anthony, uh, for the sake of our, our listeners, uh, about 50% U.S. and 50% global, um, quite a diaspora, um, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and about your um, you know, history and preoccupations before we get into discussion of the themes you raised in your book? Yeah, so I've been interested in two things pretty much my whole life, um, cities and computers, and, uh, you know, what happens when, when the two meet. Uh, I grew up um, far from the city uh, at a time when, really before the internet, um, when modems and BBSs were on the rise, and I um, I got my start in computing, exploring um online worlds by dialing into them um and that's how i you know connected to the city i went to the university really so that i could get closer to bigger computers and uh, started to study the geography of the internet as it was evolving in the early 90s and and really trying to understand at a time when a lot of people were speculating that the internet was going to let us live and work from anywhere what really was probably going to happen was what had happened with the telephone and the telegraph before that this new communications infrastructure would actually help cities grow and, and extend their influence and, and power uh, you know, across the globe. And so uh, that's what got me into academic research, went on to do a doctorate at MIT, um, was hanging out at the media lab in the late 90s. Uh, you know, when Wi-Fi was starting to show up for the first time and people were trying, you know, starting to experiment with what it meant to put a hotspot in a public place and open it up, um, you know, what mobile computing would be useful for, what we would do with location data, um, what social networks might be fun <laughs> uh, for, um, and really trying to understand, you know, what it meant that computing was going to flow off of the desktop and out into the real world. And then I spent 10 years in Silicon Valley uh, doing long-range forecasting at a think tank called the Institute for the Future, uh, working with a lot of clients in industry and government philanthropy. Um, And then I started writing about it and trying to just um, share with bigger audience, um, you know, what it meant uh, that computing was no longer something that was just shackled to our desktop, that it was going to be in our pockets in our vehicles and embedded in, in the built environment and, um, you know, how that was going to shape our lives and shape the world. 
Well, that's excellent. It's um, certainly a, a, your previous book was uh, about smart cities, you know, and I've uh, spent a lot of time talking and dealing with smart cities, both in my uh, technical consulting career around the world and uh, also in dealing with urbanists and urban planners around the world. So interesting stuff, but not the subject for today. The subject for today is your just released new book, Ghost Road, Beyond the Driverless Car. So why don't you give us the elevator pitch and then we'll kind of delve into some of the themes um, that I saw and you know questions that I had about your, your premises um, and, and go from there. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the point of Ghost Road really is to uh, break down the myths of, of the driverless car as they've been told to us mostly by, by industry over the last decade. This October will mark the 10th anniversary of uh, the unveiling of what was then Google's secret self-driving car project in October of 2010. And, um, you know, that came at a time when the U.S. auto industry was really crawling out of a couple of bankruptcies. Uh, GM and Chrysler were both bankrupt and uh, really feeling the threat of uh, Silicon Valley uh, coming coming for the jugular and uh, a tremendous uh, anxiety about the future and uh, the, the vision of a fully self-driving car, essentially a car being transformed into a computer uh, and Google putting its finger on, on the car as the computing platform of the future uh, was, was tremendously disruptive. And in fact, that vision really drew on uh, visions that had been put down decades before uh, throughout the 20th century. And it was very simple, uh, it was very elegant, it was very compelling, and it built on things that were familiar. But I don't think it's really you know, a very accurate reflection of how automated driving will actually come into our lives. No, and, and, most of what the, and certainly not how it is coming into our lives. I mean, Waymo right, so, is still not there. Yeah. So, so most of what the book is about is painting the million other ways uh, and million other reasons in which uh, automated driving is, is likely to enter our lives, whether it's through um, freight, the movement of goods rather than the movement of people, which, you know, there actually is a compelling economic need. You know, there aren't a lot of people lining up in dealer showrooms right now to buy self-driving cars. Uh, there's actually quite quite a, a bit of hesitation around it, but there's a very compelling need for automated freight vehicles right now. Um, other kinds of, of things that go on wheels, like wheelchairs or scooters or bicycles, uh, transit vehicles have had automation for a long time. There's lots of reasons um, why they could use more. Um, and so really it's, it's painting a a bigger, richer, uh, more long-term picture of what automated mobility could look like that's, I think, native to the 21st century rather than simply about uh, fixing uh, what didn't work with the automobile in the 20th century. Yeah, and, you know, I, I certainly a lot of what you said resonated with, with me. Uh, some of it didn't. Um, you know, I think that, you know, there's every book is imperfect. Um, and every, every and you know that everybody has different opinions and different data sources in many cases. So let's let's just lean into Tesla, um, you know, as a start. Um, Clean Technica spends a lot, far too much time on Tesla, but in this case, it's actually apt. Um, there are people lining up for autonomous personal vehicles, but only for Teslas. 
Um, so, you know, when you say that people aren't lining up for autonomous vehicles, there's 650,000 pre-orders for the Cybertruck, as an example, and there are close to 500,000 for the Model 3. Um, and, and these are vehicles with autonomous features of, you know, not full self-driving, not, you know, the, the end level point. But you don't seem to be much of a Tesla fan based on your book. So is that just because they're a bit of a juggernaut or do you actually have a challenge with them? Um, well, I mean, first of all, it's, it's, you know, okay. So let's, let's pick that apart. Yes. Uh, is autonomy the reason why they're buying those cars? One, I mean, I think they're buying them because they're, they're high performance electric vehicles. I would be surprised if, you know, one in 10 people are making the decision purely based on the, uh, the very limited self-driving features that are available in a vehicle, you know, which there are, there are competing products on the market that are similar. Um, but inferior, according to real-world testing by multiple magazines and test drivers. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting, you know, into an argument over... No, no, no. I'm just saying that... They're, they're, whether Tesla is better than, than one or another. And, and um, this is a point I, I don't. I don't... Yeah, okay. The, the second question is, it's nowhere near full autonomy. It's a, it's a partial autonomous driving system. Um, and it, you know, it's, it has a limited share of the marketplace. So, um, you know, that's, it is what it is. It's not, um, it's by no means, how, how long has Tesla been in business? How long has that product been on the market? I mean, they've, they've done well, but you know, they've by no means taken the market. So I think there's a niche for it. But it's um, and it's also had its problems. I mean, it's been implicated in in several fatal accidents. There's been, you know, lots of uh, you know ongoing controversies about the reliability and the safety of the product. So I think I think there's a tremendous amount of anxiety there, and you know, it's contributing to to lingering anxiety and apprehension about the technology you know, in private passenger vehicles overall. So, well, to your point, let's tease that apart. Let's talk statistics versus anecdote and sentiment. Um, you know, I agree with the premise of the book that the some of the challenges, the incredibly highly publicized challenges, relatively few in number, that the Tesla autopilot and auto steer functionality has, uh, have contributed to concerns about autonomy. But I don't see the assessment of the NHTSA um, traffic safety statistics and airbag deployment statistics in your book, for example, um, which I, I find compelling personally. I'm, I'm a statistics, I'm statistically oriented. And, and I did find that your book was leaning a bit heavily on that anecdotes. Do you want to talk to that? I'm I think I made very clear that I'm not interested in uh, autonomous vehicle safety because I don't think it's, it's the most important policy question. Um, I think it, it, I address it because I'm, I think it, it will uh, slow down the rate of adoption in the marketplace because those concerns will linger. I don't think it's the most important thing. I think there's the, the U.S. and other countries um, that have their own and international mechanisms for motor vehicle safety standards that are fairly effective. There's a whole, you know, legal apparatus for dealing with, uh, you know, product liability uh, that kicks in when, when those things don't anticipate 
new dangers. And uh, that stuff, I think, will, will function fairly well. And it is functioning now. So, you know, in, in many cases, I think that it's a self-regulating system there. If automated vehicles aren't safe, there won't be an automated vehicle industry. They won't succeed in the marketplace. So I didn't feel like it was a, it was a topic that was worthy of, of uh, yet another 50 pages of, of uh, research and, and pontification. I was more interested in what happens when we start plugging millions of uh, automated vehicles into uh, automated mobility markets and we can start building new kinds of subscription packages and we can start building financial instruments that are uh, derived from automated vehicle revenues and these things start getting traded in the way that um, other kinds of commodities are traded. You know, what, what does that start to mean in terms of how urban mobility is priced and allocated uh, and governed and regulated? And these are things that, to my knowledge, aren't being talked about and aren't being talked about in a sophisticated way. So that was where I thought it was important to start focusing some of the long-term policy attention. The safety stuff is, there's already a lot of attention on it, um, you know, as you're pointing out. And I didn't feel like that was where my effort was best placed. Oh, no. Very reasonable. So um, we, um, there's a fair amount of discussion about congestion, and there's a, an interesting thread there. Uh, certainly in my you know, reading of the research, you know, highway congestion is well-modeled, and uh, autonomous vehicles will reduce highway congestion. Um, I, I think that overall... Uh, and I want to get your perspective on this, that um, overall congestion will increase with autonomous vehicles uh, because there will be more vehicles tra on the road, more vehicle miles traveled. Um, no vehicles won't be going into a central place and stopping, but will stay on the road. And transiting, especially um, downtown intersections, will slow down is what the research seems to be saying to me. But I'd like your opinion on that. I mean, just overall, do you think autonomous vehicles are going to decrease or increase congestion and why? Well, I mean, just, just automation itself won't be the decisive factor. It'll be how people, you know, use automation to change travel behavior and then, you know, how regulators respond to that. So it's a very complex system that has a lot of moving pieces um, and, it, it's it's tough to say, but you know, there's a couple sort of different ways of thinking about what the levers are. What I was trying to map out in the book was, you know, where are those dials? Like, what are the, what are the the freedoms that automation is likely to uh, unlock? And um, you know, what it, first of all, what are our assumptions about it? And I think I think that, that really over getting back to where I started. One of the, the best oversimplifications that we've been sold is, is that in addition to being perfectly safe, automated vehicles are going to eliminate traffic. Whenever uh, visions of the future of automated driving are rolled out, right after the 95% of crashes that are caused by human error are going to be eliminated by computer driving, once that you know anxiety is, is put to bed, the next one is... Uh, 
the visual of platooning and you know computer synchronized traffic moving in kind of perfect synchronization and you know that that is the future that's never going to be possible because it presumes uh you know a, a homogeneous fleet of vehicles uh traveling you know everyone's surrendering uh control of of the vehicle speed uh and guidance um and uh you know that that there's no variation in in travel down the road when in fact uh because this technology is going to roll out over time you know every vehicle is going to have different capabilities and we're going to have all different levels of human and automated driving on the road at the same time so the driving environment on the road is actually going to get a lot more complex in terms of you know who can do what um and how many different types of drivers there are on the road and so yeah we may get to that vision that's kind of science fiction vision uh but not until way towards the end of the 21st century so far down the road it's not even worth talking about now so there's this massive transition um so that you know that vision of kind of perfectly synchronized traffic rocketing down the highway which is really the prevailing vision um you know it's just it's completely unrealistic unless you're talking about some place that's building this from scratch um so certainly not the united states maybe maybe you know parts of the developing developing world um so then the next thing is what is what is it going to do for for overall travel um you know there's been a lot of speculation about what the cost of uh particularly shared automated vehicle travel would be and um you know whether this is going to whether it would be so cheap cheap to travel in essentially like a shared uber or lyft ride hail taxi that people would want to get rid of their own private automobiles uh that's a very appealing vision uh for many people because it reduces parking requirements um potentially puts a lot of you know fossil fuel powered cars off the road and puts electric powered cars back on the road um but anytime you reduce the cost of travel you're going to get more travel um that's just that's just kind of a basic transportation economics concept so yes we were looking at, at more travel that is uh almost inevitable and then there's a bunch of other um factors to consider about where the travel happens so if you introduce more um distance based pricing which you're going to get if you move away from private vehicle ownership then you're likely to get more travel happening in more concentrated areas um and there's a whole bunch of of reasons why this is so that we don't have time to get into uh which means probably and we've seen this with ride hail you know that the footprints tend to be pretty tight because the fleets can be most heavily utilized you don't get a lot of deadheading between empty seats between rides um and so all of that points towards quite a quite a hefty surge of of uh traffic um in in more densely populated areas now the flip side of that is that you also have a lot more ability to influence people's behavior 
um, at the system level that you didn't have before because you can you can price things as a, an operator like you can do demand management uh, like uber does um, or you can do demand management as a public entity so um, you know what we call congestion pricing so there are there are dials that you can turn to try to shift some of the the traffic out of the most congested areas, either to different parts of the city or um, different times of day. So it's a very, very complex set of um, variables. But I think at the end of the day, um, what it does is it, it allows for more mobility, which really is the thing that we're trying to do because Mobility gives people, you know, options to get to work, to get to school, to have social interaction, to get health care. It is the thing, is the reason why we have big cities is so that people can get access and connect to each other. Um, and, you know, a lot of what urban planners tend to try to do now is restrict mobility because of all the externalities and all the problems that it creates. And that's really not a good position for them to be in. And so I think to the extent that automated mobility is going to allow the creation of more mobility within the existing built environment, it's going to produce a lot of social and economic benefit um, without, you know, necessarily creating a lot of costs. And so that's the exciting part of it is it's, it's kind of a mobility technology that's very well suited for cities. And we'll, we'll, Sorry, it's that, a really long-winded answer, but it's, no. a, it's an incredibly complex set of uh, issues that you raised. And it is, you know, I, um, I've, you know, not to the near the depth that you have, but I've studied urban transit, urban transportation, urban traffic patterns, um, and urban development. Um, so I understand all the different levels you, you've asserted, um, and also how they play out over the world. I lived in Singapore, which has strong congestion pricing and for its CBD for a couple of years, um, you know, and I've been to other parts of the world and other major cities around the world. And I see the differences in behavior patterns between governments and individuals and different places. You know, the United States is an outlier. Um, as you know, it's like um, even more than Germany. It loves it. You, you know, Americans love their cars, although that's diminishing. Um, you know, what was the statistic I saw yesterday when I was looking at something? 16 miles, one way driving commute for the average person in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that whatever, um, whether or not it was diminishing, you know, we have to look at sort of closely at the statistics, but in the last six months, however, the love affair with the automobile that might have been ending has taken a 180 degree reversal. <laughs> I mean, automobile is the ultimate personal protective equipment and Americans are jumping back into their cars, you know, yeah. as fast as possible right now. Um, transit ridership is probably at a 50-year low in the United States right now. True around not the world. All-time all all yeah. low. Um, and we're not, we're not prepared to return. And you're going to see a, a pretty rapid decline and collapse of transit in a lot of places in the United States in the next year. You know, if it, if it isn't bailed out. And even if it is bailed out, it's probably still going to limp along. So, you know, automobiles 
are going to play a major role in the U.S. transportation system for a long time to come, and they're going to be particularly important in the next couple of years. That's um, true. I mean, other parts of the world, uh, much greater bicycle ridership and electric bikes have been you know taking the world by storm. They've gone up what uh, eightfold from 2014 to 2017 in the United States, as an example. But still, bicycle riders in the United States are 12 percent of the populace versus nine and ten in Denmark or 44 percent in Germany. Um, and a lot of that is because the United States was developed to a great uh, a great extent in the 20th century based upon the car. Um, it's just a more dispersed population. I mean, it's, we're, we're spread further apart. Yeah, we can go back to the GI Bill um, for the return from World War II and the mortgage, the creation of Fannie Mae and Fannie Mac. You know, for some of those pieces, we can look at the transit um, attacks mm-hmm. by the big three automakers um, that, you know, challenged the way that cities were built and developed. And we can go back to a lot of those types of things, but the reality is in the United States, um, urban sprawl is the reality. And, you know, back to that electric bike and the electric mobility thing, you push quite a bit in the book, which is very reasonable. Mm -hmm. The statistics on people's willingness to commute in terms of distance is about four miles on a normal bike one way and about seven Mm -hmm. miles on an electric bike one way. Right. And you know, if the average person is 16 miles one way, electric bikes, you know, just don't cut it. They're, they're insufficient in a lot of places, but there's a really interesting thread that you pull on, which I want to get to, which is will autonomous vehicles increase sprawl or Mm -hmm. will other things combat sprawl? Um, the reason is, and you, you lead into this, you talked about induced demand without saying induced demand from the behavioral economics perspective in terms of freedom from mobility. And you talk about the potential for people to be able to do things in their cars other than drive, leading to them being willing to go further away, um, you know, in terms of taking a home. And so that's an increaser of sprawl. It's an increaser of that suburban drive outwards where that's possible. Um, do you want to talk about you know, the, the contra- contradicting impulses that might lead to um, a denser urban fabric versus a more sprawled urban fabric? Because I think that you talked to different aspects in both, different, in both ways. Yeah, I mean, this is another example of where I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was that I felt that... Um, there were there was an emerging debate about what the the long term land use impacts uh, land use and transportation impacts of what automated mobility might be um, that we're not really looking clearly at, at at the technology itself or or the application of the technology but rather mapping it onto existing points of view. Um, and so in the book I call I call the self driving sprawl and, and car like communes. And you know, self-driving sprawl, I think, is is very much you know a Musk kind of Google Silicon Valley view of the world, which is um, you know California in the 20th century was great. Let's just scale it up and make it sustainable um, <clears throat> in a in a very simplistic sort of way, um, and you know assuming that people will essentially be able to make productive use of time spent 
uh, on you know extremely long commutes to places in the periphery where they can uh, build a house they can afford. There's a bunch of problems with that. <laughs> the usual critiques of sprawl in terms of consumption of pristine land, in terms of the cost of the infrastructure to service it, in terms of all the social ills. Uh, but also, you know, if you look at surveys that have done, been done year after year, going back a decade now, in multiple countries, people don't actually want to work in self-driving cars. When you ask them what they'll do, they say they'll sleep, watch TV, chat, um, but they don't want to work. And so the economists, you know, the multiple think tanks have, have done this, justifying investments in AV infrastructure, uh, deregulation of AV testing, all kinds of, of policy changes based on the fact that we'll recover all of the lost productive time stuck in traffic, which I think is like on the order of $150 billion a year in the U.S. But, you know, there's there's no evidence that people will actually use that time to work and lots of evidence that they will not. So, I mean, the only way we'll find out is if we actually get there. But, um, you know, that, so, so that, that's sort of one very simplistic scenario that didn't kind of stand up to much scrutiny. And then the other is, is this um, vision that's, I think, very much how progressive urban planners uh, who uh, favor more transit, more compact development, uh, see automated vehicles fitting into their worldview, which is essentially um, you know, a, a super-powered version of Uber that fills a particular gap in the urban mobility world um, that isn't, you know, well-served by transit or walking. And, um, you know, it's cheap shared uh, automated taxis. And, you know, I call this car-like communes, just kind of a little bit of a, a jab. Uh, but, uh, you know, the the... the the benefits there is you know, essentially getting rid of all private cars from cities, but still having some very uh, useful and cheap and available private taxis, shared taxis to, um, to, to take people that need them for certain kinds of trips. And you reduce the amount of cars, you reduce the amount of street traffic, and you get all the benefits of that. Uh, the problem is that, uh, you know, very few people actually use shared ride hail today even in in some of the like the places where it's most popular like the sort of hipster neighborhoods it never gets above 30 or 40 percent uh, people take taxis because they they want a private ride they want that luxury or they may have very um, personal security reasons or medical reasons or health reasons now why they need that private ride and so if you look at the levels of sharing that are needed to achieve the outcomes that that are desired um, by some of these advocates. And you, you basically have to like hold a gun to people's heads and force them to share the rides. Um, and so it becomes, the policy measures become quite strong and it starts to not look like a really fun world. So both of these ideas were sort of like real extremes. And so I said, look, you know, in reality, where we're probably gonna end up is with a little bit of both. Um, and most technologies like this, you know, it doesn't predetermine its, you know, impact on the world. It's how we use it. And there will be people, you know, all the people lining up to buy the Teslas that you pointed out, 
they're the people that are going to use it to, you know, move three hours out from wherever the employment center is and stay tethered to that employment center and maybe even be able to change jobs and still be attached to that employment center, even though they're living three hours out from it. You know, they'll still be part of that labor market because they can pop in one or two days a week because even with that partially automated driving, they can make some productive use of that time. They may be one of the few, you know, that aren't going to be watching a movie when they're cruising down the road. Um, And there may be parts of uh, another city where you do see big reductions in automobile use because the city strongly encourages uh, automated ride sharing. But, you know, the whole world isn't going to tip one way or another. Automated mobility isn't isn't pushing us towards one of those outcomes one way or another. You know, and the way I look at this is, is really, you know, same way like the impact of the mobile phone. Mobile phones made it possible for a city like Hong Kong or Manhattan to become, you know, even more dense and thriving uh, because it was so easy to coordinate and survive, you know, in that bustling crowded place as it did in Los Angeles, right? where it became a tool for surviving in this vast spread out, you know, car dependent sprawl. It's, it's like a Swiss army knife that allows people to, to put together the pieces they need to survive in whatever environment they may find themselves. And in that sense, it's a very general purpose, flexible technology that can, you know, be, be used to, to create many, many different kinds of mobilities uh, that respond, you know, people can use to, to do what they need to do, uh, you know, to solve the problems that, that they may have, whether it's moving over long distances infrequently or moving very short distances very often. Um, and that's, that's really what the book is trying to celebrate. Like the first third of the book is really trying to, to help show that, you know, the future of automated mobility is not about perfecting the automobile, this one product. It's about this explosion of innovation in many different vehicle types and many different services and many different platforms, you know, like the App Store that will enable hundreds of thousands or even millions of, of new kinds of things to be invented that will, that will exploit this potential. And, and in, that, in that sense, it's a very urban technology because, you know, it will allow for you know very very niche kinds of products and services to get to market um, even if they only have a few customers because they'll solve the, the need for those customers perfectly and it gets to the question of when and how soon you know which you quite mm-hmm. rightly point out we're going to be existing with human and semi-autonomous and autonomous vehicles of a wide variety of sizes on the roads and cities um, you know and you know just to lean into a couple of points you make you know the you know, the, the induced demand, has, and, and I assume you've read Kahneman, you've read Thinking Fast and Slow and some of the other cognitive research in terms of how people actually make choices because you talk about... I wouldn't make, I wouldn't make any assumptions. <laughs> it's not a safe assumption then? Um, no. Okay. So the, um, the, a lot of the studies you referred to about how people will uh, rationally choose to work more and earn more money on their commute, um, there's a 
Kahneman and the psychologists who deal with behavioral economics talk about econs versus you know actual human beings. Um, and you know, economic theory, classical economic theory, assumes we all all make decisions rationally. You know, and I'm digging through a bunch of uh, game theory stuff right now in a, you know, award-winning book on strategy that's based on game theory. And it's the same problem. They, they assume that human beings are rational actors as opposed to people who make irrational decisions and then justify them with our higher minds after we've made them with our lower minds. And, you know, to your point, there are people who want to live in the suburbs and have a big house and a, live out there are going to choose for that reason. And then they're going to choose to sleep or entertain themselves in their car, not be more productive. Um, and then there would be people like me. I mean, m- my weirdest day, um, and you've probably had days like this. Uh, there's a day I woke up and we were moving. I think I was going to Sao Paulo, who was living in Toronto at the time. So we'd sold our condo. I walked across the street to get coffee. The coffee maker was um, packed, obviously. Uh, the moving truck arrived. I took the moving truck uh, in the cab in the moving truck to the storage locker. I walked three blocks after checking on my smartphone where the nearest, uh, you know, shareable car was. And I walked over the lot and unlocked it with my smartphone and got in and drove downtown, picked up some spackle, you know, at a Canadian tire, which is our equivalent of a Home Depot. And drove, then I walked back and I took the subway. Um, and then later that day, I took a bike share. Um, you know, so I think it was seven modes of transportation that day. And it's assembling these small bits based upon what makes most sense for this leg of the transportation. And a lot of that is, you know, where you start getting into what you're talking about. Would I have gone to get Spackle if I could just order it and have it autonomously delivered by a small urban delivery vehicle? You know, one of the key things you talk about. You know, would I have gone ordered coffee in if I could have had an autonomous vehicle deliver it to my front door, in this case, mm-hmm. across the street. Um, so it wouldn't have made any sense. Um, but that's where you start getting into some really interesting stuff. What will the form factor for transportation on city streets actually be? Will it be trucks? Will it be cars? Or will it be much smaller vehicles with very small point source things? You know, a pod on wheels that's delivering five bags of groceries to a human. So. Mm-hmm. You know, start leaning into that as that secondary aspect of, you know, a bunch of worrying devices humming their way through our streets and along our sidewalks and pathways. Yeah, I mean, I think the right-sizing of vehicles is probably one of the biggest opportunities, both in terms of energy consumption and emissions from the transportation sector, as well as, like, urban surface transportation management. So... You know, for 100 years, we've basically tried to put everything into the same size box. Uh, You know, it's a two-ton, two to ten-ton vehicle on four wheels, chugging along, taking up a pretty large piece of of urban real estate. You know, whether it has one person or ten people or one box or 100 boxes in it. Uh, And so there's all kinds of reasons why... uh, automation and electrification, which sort of go hand in hand, are going to allow real unbundling and allow the, the vehicle sizes and shapes to to just, you know, fragment a lot uh, and, and why that's a great thing. And so a lot of what I tried to do, um, I think particularly in the area of, of uh, delivery and moving, moving freight, is show just that really wide spectrum of vehicle sizes, you know, all the way from 
things that are hauling one one meal essentially and doing it on demand uh you know under a mile uh to um things that are hauling uh you know transcontinental loads uh you know around the clock 24 hour 7 operation uh through the night literally down the ghost road you know down transcontinental highways that are totally devoid of of human drivers uh, because there's no reason why anyone would want to be there. Uh, it's essentially just a you know a railroad for computer-driven trucks and everything everything in between there. Um, one of the really interesting things, I think, probably the most surprising thing for me that, that fell out of the book is that so when you look at automating sort of all freight, um, it, it it really starts to unlock a, a whole bunch of possibilities. Um, one of the most fascinating things to me. And this is still a really developing area of research. So, but I think even the early findings are pretty convincing that for, for almost any thing that you can imagine, any mode of transport other than walking to the store, having something delivered to your home rather than getting in an automobile and going to the store to get it is less carbon intensive. Um, because of the, the, you know, just the, the setup of the, um, distribution system, and especially as more and more of retail purchasing happens online, and the efficiency of what they call delivery density increases. Uh, so when a, a delivery truck comes to your block, it's not just coming and dropping one package for you and zooming off, you know, and maybe making a hundred deliveries in your neighborhood and a hundred stops and starts. It may be coming to your block and there for an hour, making a bunch of deliveries on foot. As that delivery density increases, it's becoming more and more efficient. Um, and uh, even drones, which you you would think of as like, oh, well, it's flying. It must be a very, you know, energy intense thing. Um, drones are actually quite energy efficient because they're they're so light. And so. Some of some of the research that's starting to to come out is showing, you know, that like we want to be moving as much of the material through the supply chain into our homes that we consume through that system rather than us going out to get it uh, in private automobiles, which is I find pretty fascinating. Uh, it also creates a lot less traffic. Um, so this is something that, you know, given what has happened with the um, kind of fast forward that we've taken um, into uh, the e-commerce future over the last six months in, in light of uh, COVID-19 and, and, and the various shutdowns that are in different states of, of progress, um, it's actually, I think, um, a really huge opportunity uh, and um you know, we've, we've got people now who are shopping from home who, who never would have done so before. Uh, you know, a lot of older people and people who may have, you know, not wanted to engage in technology. And so it's like this big hump of adop adoption that might have been very difficult to get over before has, has been overcome. Those people see the benefits. So is there a way to lock that in place? Uh, think about transitioning to what could be a more sustainable way of delivering uh, these materials into communities. Uh, put, you know, 
And essentially what I think it entails is a, is a big strategic rethink of how we move material and freight in, in neighborhoods and, and communities that we haven't done since the end of deindustrialization, uh, like you know, 30, 40 years ago. Most cities pay very, very little attention to the movement of goods. And so they haven't done a lot of long-term thinking about it. Uh, I think it was just two years ago um, in the U.S. that the number of parcels shipped from businesses to consumers surpassed the number shipped from businesses to businesses. So the whole parcel system is now pivoting from being a business to business to being a business to consumer infrastructure. Um, E-commerce was growing at about 15% a year, which is about three times the rate of bricks and mortar retailing. You know, stores closing, those numbers are all just like obsolete now this year. Uh, so we'll have to recalibrate all of that. But so the big question then becomes, well, what do you do about neighborhood retailing and high streets? Because they're just going to be decimated, um, not only because of COVID, but because of the, the sort of permanent resetting of, of the retail floor. So I think once the dust clears, uh, and at the same time, you have a lot of repositioning. Uh, Amazon is certainly trying to move in now. Um, they spent a billion dollars last week buying uh, Zooks, which is a Silicon Valley autonomous driving company. It's not clear if there's a, a delivery play there or not, but you know, Amazon's definitely going to make a move to control that last mile of delivery. Postal systems, uh, it's not clear what role they'll play in the future, whether they're going to continue to operate and try to innovate new services. Um, you know, should postal systems be getting into delivering food uh, and doing instant deliveries and things like that? I think, as it, you know, like at face value, you would think, no, that doesn't make any sense. On the other hand, there's a lot of businesses that are struggling right now, small businesses that are struggling to stay connected to their customers. And if postal systems could play a role in, you know, potentially helping bridge that connection, it might also help define a future for postal systems. So it's worth exploring. So I think, I think there's, there's a lot of stuff up in the air, but figuring out you know, how we move stuff from these kind of neighborhood level distribution centers into our homes is really going to, and do it in a, in a, in a much different tempo. It's not just once a day, it's once a day, you know, once an hour on demand. Uh, and then where automation starts to make things really exciting is that it opens up the entire 24 hour, you know, diary essentially um, to where you can start thinking about doing a lot of this at night and, uh, streets don't have to be a place where this increasing tide of material and deliveries has to conflict with things like streets for cyclists and walking and recreation and kids. Uh, you can you can move the bulk of your stuff at night because it's, you know if it's going by automated electric vehicles, it's going to be quiet. It's going to be pretty safe. Um, you know, and if you have any reservations about that, you can run it at half speed. The robots won't get bored. You may need more of them, but they can just trundle along a little more slowly. So the tremendous amount of freedom, uh, you know, I think this is just going to be a really rich area. And again, when the dust settles, I'm expecting a lot of investors and, and inventors to get in here and really start to come up with some, some, clever, some clever solutions for, for figuring out how we're going to do this. 
Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.